Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can be here today to be able to sing these songs of praise to you, songs of gratitude, songs of reminding us what you've done, what you're doing, what you're yet going to do. We would ask that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would open our ears to hear and our eyes to see and our hearts to be open and receptive to what you want to do in us and through us. We ask that you would be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me tell you a short story, very short story. It's about a woman named Sharon. Sharon graduated from a very good university. She was doing very well. She wanted to go west, try to get in part of the high-tech kind of world, and she did. It took a while, but she got a good job, and she liked it. It wasn't a big company, but it seemed to be a solid company, and she was accepted there, and she did very well. She was a smart woman. She worked hard, and she really enjoyed it. But as time went on, she started realizing some things that she didn't maybe understand when she came there. It was very common that after a long week on Fridays that everybody would walk down to the pub down there just a few blocks away, and they'd have some beer and stuff like that. And it was that She went sometimes with them, but she personally chose not to drink. And um, sometimes it's just kind of boring to sit around with other people who are drinking, and she just felt out of place. She was a strong Christian, uh, and there were very few, from what she could tell, there were any other believers there. But she realized that's, you know, that goes with the territory. But as time went on, she began to realize that a lot of those people that were there hanging around with the bar later in, on Friday nights, that a lot of them were going to um, a lake house that a front, one of the guys who was a high manager had. And he started, she started hearing more and more about Monday morning, Monday morning, hearing about, you can't believe the good time that we had. And they talked about all the debauchery that went on and fueled by alcohol and what a great time that was. And she realized that I just feel more and more removed from these people. Their idea is getting drunk and doing a lot of things that people will not be doing. And she realized that this didn't seem to be any more of a fit for her. And the hard part was she realized that when they, she had her next review, her, last, her review, it, it didn't come out very good. And they had told her, you're doing great. We love what you're doing. But she began to realize that if you weren't part of the in-group there, and if you weren't living the way they were living, it really wasn't a place for you. She was a strong believer. She wanted to serve the Lord. She wanted to do what the Lord wanted to. She, she had all that going for her, but she saw her friends that, at, this, at the work there, and they, and they were having a good time, and they are having a great time. And if you listen to them, it sounded like it was just wonderful, and she felt more and more alone. And then finally, as her heart became more and more bitter to the Lord, she asked a question that people from us 2,000 years have been asking each other. It's a question of this. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to serve the Lord? There are many people over the last 2,000, 3,000 years who've come to the conclusion, no, it's not. I want to be where the fun is. I want to be where the good time is. And what happened, it became, it became a real issue for her. Is it worth it? to serve the Lord. The passage we have in front of us right now is a passage of a person, we don't know if it's male or female, let's just call him him, whoever it was, is Psalm chapter 73 is dealing with that very issue. Is it worth it to serve the Lord? And I invite you to turn if you would, and I think we've got it also on, uh, here going. 
just give you a little bit of background to the psalm. As you know, we're doing a series. <clears throat> we're doing a series on the five, kind of like the um, a taste of the psalms. And um, excuse me for just a minute. <clears throat> Let me make sure this is working. And I think it is. But now I think it's not. I've got it on. It says on. We have technical difficulties at this moment, so hang on with me if you would. Yes, it says on, so I'm not sure why. Somebody younger can say, yes, you have to turn on the button. Is it working? Hmm, why is it working for you and not for me? But the, what we've been doing is been working on a series that's been going on, and it's still not working, obviously. Point it towards where? Here? Even what do you got? What's the problem here, Ethan? Technical difficulties are coming through. It worked last Sunday. You can live by technology. You can die by technology. <laughs> so turn, if you would, to chapter. I mean, to Psalm chapter seventy-three. We've talked about the fact that in the book of Psalms, we have an interesting situation. We're just in the Old Testament when we talk about the law, the Torah. What we find out is that there was five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And what last people don't realize is that in the book of Psalms, you have a very similar situation. You've got the five books, too. And what we have here, Psalm chapter 73, is the beginning of the third, the third, third group of that. And it begins with this phrase called a Psalm of Asaph. We've talked before about the sons of Korah last Sunday we talked about. We're talking now about Asaph. Uh, and he... Asaph was a person who I think you were told about in 1 Chronicles chapter 20. And uh, what we have is that it's, it's interesting because it shows we've got another chance here, Ethan. Oh, let's give it a shot. All right, we'll see if it works. Ah, there it is, a taste of the Psalms. That's good to know it's working. And um, what we have here is a, a nice quote of what a guy said about, wrote about this psalm. This guy's Marvin Tate. He's a commentator. He wrote this. And he said this, Psalm 73 is surely one of the greatest psalms in, a, in terms of reader response. Readers over and over again find that the word of the psalms, quote, fits their condition. The psalm is an ancient, ancient composition, but it always seems contemporary. That's one of the great things about the psalms, that people that are 100 years away, 1,000 years away, 2,000 years can say, I know what that's like. I can identify with people. And that's what made the Psalms so wonderful and so powerful. And so what we have here when we look at this passage, it's about seven Psalms that are written by Asaph. We know not, not much about him. First Chronicles 25 describes him. And it's the first book of three, and it's a group of them of 11 Psalms going from 73 to 83. And so what we want to do is start, let's go through this Psalm a little bit and we'll <clears throat> talk about it. First of all, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure of heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. And then here is the core issue. For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is not a new issue. This is an issue that goes back well over 2,000 years. That is, people say, you know, the Lord is good. We read the book of Genesis. 
We see how the fact how God honors Jacob and then Esau. and all. We talk about their tribes that got bigger and bigger and God honored them and they had huge crops and they had all kinds of goats and sheep and God honors those who love them. And then they look around and say, well, I don't get it. It's not working for me. I'm working hard. I'm doing everything I can and it doesn't seem it's working. And so here's this person, whoever this guy is who's writing this, He's saying, you know what, I envy the arrogant. He said, I don't understand. I, I thought God honored those that honored him. Well, it doesn't seem like it's working for me. And so it's really interesting here because it's not only just a theological problem, it's a personal issue, but it's that idea of God honors the righteous, God punishes the unrighteous, that's a basic thing in the Old Testament. But the reality is, and what it's telling us here is, it doesn't seem to work that way. In fact, what happens is the psalmist goes on in these next few verses to say, you want to know how they're doing? I'm doing lousy, thank you very much. Here's what they're doing. He says, as he goes here, as I try to turn this on, here we go. Because look, at they have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers over them like a garment. There's all kinds of metaphors being used here that are unusual. This one, therefore, pride is their necklace. It's hard to kind of think of that one. Somebody put it and translated it this way. Arrogance has become their status symbol. In other words, they're proud, they're cocky, they're doing well, and yet God's people, this person, they're not doing well. And it's like, wait a minute, tell me again, God, you honor those that honor you, right? Right. And you've told us that you will multiply it right. What well, ain't working? And so tell me what's wrong here. What am I doing that's not right here? And here's the descriptions they do this. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. That's when you're really in trouble, when your eyes bulge out from fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock. They speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouth against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Now try to visualize tongues going across the earth. You can't get too little on these, but the point is, it just seems to be spreading. It's all over the place. Therefore, in verse 10, it, by the way, is a very hard word. If you're following along in your Bible, if it sounds slightly different, that's understandable. Because verse 10 in Hebrew is, in Hebrew is very difficult. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. Maybe, I don't know. It's a hard passage, but it's, pro it's probably as close as we can get. Sort of the idea of that what's important here is, therefore, his people. In other words, he's saying God's people seem to be turning to these bad guys, these people who are opposed to God, these guys who are, who are laughing at those that are trying to be sincere to the Lord. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Well, the answer we could say is, yeah. This person, whoever it was, is writing, was talking about this. They didn't seem to think maybe he knew it. He knew some things, but not everything. In other words, why do you want to bother about worrying about God? He doesn't know everything. You ought to be having fun doing the things you want to do. Look at them, the wicked. They're always at ease, and they increase their wealth. Therefore, going back to this verse, these people turn to them and drink in overflowing words. Eugene Peterson, he's trying to put it in a very colloquial way, put it this way. People actually listen to them? Can you believe it? Like thirsty puppies, they lap up their words. 
Now, it's an interesting thing. He's, again, this is just a paraphrase. It's not directly from the Hebrew text. But the point he's trying to make is, can you believe this? People who would know better, who are believers, seem to be turning away and following these people who are smart, who have money. Now, think about that. That's a real temptation for people. You look at people who get around somebody who's a famous millionaire or somebody who's a famous movie star. Oh, people all want to be around them. Somehow be somewhere in their aura around them, what they're doing. And what's happening here is he's saying, listen, they, 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 they're, they're moving that way. Rather than moving towards God, they're moving away from God. And so remember the whole question, like, is it worth it? It's like, what am I, the last person here trying to follow God? What's happening here? Why is it getting set this way? So therefore, his people return to them, and they drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, well, how can God know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase their wealth. Because did I purify my heart and wash my hands for innocence, for nothing? This is the real kind of question the person's asking. You know, all the things I've done to try to honor you, Lord, all the things that you've asked me to do that I've been doing, I've been trying to live a pure life before you. Kind of like in the story of Sharon, she was trying to live a life godly before the Lord, but everybody else was having fun. Everybody thought she was a fool not to get in the party. And so the person who's writing this is saying, Lord, I don't get it. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands and then it's for nothing? Am I wasting my time here? Is this all just a big joke? I mean, the world's going behind me. They have fun things. There's good things they're doing. And, and, and I'm sitting here trying to honor the Lord. And it doesn't seem to work. Verse 16. Verse 16 and 17 are really important in this passage. Verse 16. When I tried to understand this, it seemed hopeless. This is where the person, the psalmist who writes this, is at the bottom. When I tried to understand this, it seemed hopeless. What's the point? It's not just of one people. It's like many of your people are turning away from you. They want to be in the good times. Look at our worship. It seems rather boring compared to the Canaanites. I mean, they got quite a thing going on. I mean, they got cult, you know, they got cult prostitution as part of their worship. They don't have to worry about trying to get men come to their services. It works really well for them. So why is it that things are working well for them and it's not working for me who's trying to be faithful to God? And so this is a big issue. And what happens is in the next verse where it says, it all seemed hopeless until, until I entered God's sanctuary, then I understood their destiny. What we don't know is what happened when he went into God's temple, and when he was there, was there some kind of epiphany where the Lord spoke to him? Was there just something of the sense of the majesty of God? We don't know what it was. Something happened at that moment. God in his mercy gave that psalmist an idea of saying, it, it is worth it. Don't give up on me. Just because the world is gradually going that way and trying to drag you with it, don't go. You're going to have to run. You're going to have to be like a salmon. You're going up the river, and it's a hard thing to do, but you've got to do it. And so this section where it says, I understood their destiny. In other words, God doesn't have to bring judgment immediately. In fact, sometimes it seems more often than not, God brings judgment often much later. 
And so this passage right here, when we come to this passage right here in verse 17, this is the turning point. Because at this person point, it's like, okay, whew, I do get it. I don't quite understand it all, but I realize it is worth it. And so look at these next few verses, if you would. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. The you is obviously God. God, you do put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors, like, like one walking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you'll despise their image. It's saying, Lord, I, I realize you, not your judgment doesn't always happen right away, but it will be a time when you bring justice upon all those who are opposed to you. And so this passage right here, we've gone, he's gone the, the down to the bottom. He's met the Lord in the tabernacle or in the tent, wherever it was. And now it's going back to saying, okay, I do get it. And it's worth it. It's worth it to follow the Lord. Look, if you would, this next passage, this next um, thing here. Remember this guy? Some of you are saying, yeah, he took some of my money. No, maybe, maybe not. But Bernie Madoff, one of the most wealthy men in America, who had this hedge fund who was making all kinds of money. And, of course, you know the story, what happened to him. It turned out it was like a Ponzi scheme. It turned out that millions of people, I mean, millions of dollars of money was lost. Uh, he, he was a Jewish guy. It's amazing. The, um, the Jewish seminary there in downtown Manhattan had all of their money in Madoff's group. And they lost it all. It was remarkable. And he is changed from going a man that had everything. He had planes. He had houses. He had, he had yachts. And life has changed for him. And he's got 140 years yet to go before they let him out. Something tells me he's not going to make it out the door unless they carry him out. And it's the thing saying, you know, we don't know the time when God is going to bring judgment on people, but he does. And don't envy these people because they're doing all this and they're doing that. God is God. And he is the one who will be the judge. Verse 23 and 24 are two beautiful verses that many people have been huge verses in their life. This verse 23 is so beautiful. Yet, I love that word yet. Yours might say because or nevertheless. Nevertheless, I am always with you. In fact, it said, you hold my right hand. The right hand was like the hand of power. And it's like, you know what? I realize, Lord, you are with me, and you're holding my hand. And, and while this whole world is opposed to you and is turning away from you, it says, yes, I am always with you, and you hold my right hand. I, I don't have to worry about what's going to happen to these people, their judgment in the later. It says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you'll take me up in glory. That was a, there's a real is, issue here, not a big one, but when it says you can be taking me up in glory, the idea of like going to be in heaven, or it could be you take me up for glory with the idea of the person that you're being, the person's being glorified, honored because of serving the Lord. Either one of those two things are possible. I think it's most likely that here it's being used with the idea of being taken up in glory, talking about the fact how one day God will take us to be with him. So notice, if you would, verse 25, this beautiful verse. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth 
but you. Come on, let's be honest. Could you really say that in the depth of your heart? There's really nothing I want more than you. That may be a little bit too difficult. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. And then he goes back to this idea of the fact that God will bring judgment. For those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell all what I can tell about all that you do. And that ends the psalm. It is a beautiful psalm. No wonder it's there at the very beginning of that group of the psalms. In many ways, it probably is like the introduction to the 11 psalms that are there. And so what you see going on here, here's a passage that's answering and dealing with this question, is it worth it? And here's a person that came to the point and said, you know, for a while there I thought it wasn't worth it. But I realized it is. Whatever the cost, think about the people in, in Cairo right now, in Alexandria in cities where they have put time and money into building churches and all this is going on and they watch it being burned down. And if you read some of the stuff that's going on, these people are, what some of them are saying, including some of their leaders, saying, you know what, they burn it down, that's okay. This is not the church. The church is us. We may lose our building, but unless they kill us all, we are here and we are the church. That's kind of an amazing thing that they're willing to do that. By the way, there are, in some of the places where they're burning churches, there are Muslims that are coming out that are trying to stop it. A lot of them just hate to see, they hate to see what's happening in Egypt. And so you have people saying, is it worth it? In spite, you know, should we hold on? Should we keep trying here in a country where we're a minority? And they're saying, we're trying to. We want to be a testimony to the Lord. And so we have this passage that keeps reminding us about it. Arthur Weiser, German, wrote this one about this passage. <clears throat> Nowhere else in the Old Testament is the power of faith in God to master life so profoundly grasped in such purity and strength. Nowhere so forcibly formulated as in the nevertheless or the yet or the but, uttered by faith by which the poet of Psalm 73 commits himself to God. It is a great psalm, a good psalm to know. It's interesting here, when you look at this psalm, what are the kind of things that come out of this? One is the issue of doubt, which for most Christians at some point in their life, some for multiple times in their life, have struggled with doubt. In this passage, the person who was doing it, they were doubting. Their faith was weak. They seemed to be almost crumbling, getting to the point of saying, it isn't worth it. It's not worth it to follow the Lord. But doubt is something that seems to characterize just about every Christian, some to greater degree, some to others. Here's a quote from it. But on the other hand, though there is faith here, there's also doubt. Whoever this person was who's writing and living the psalm does struggle in believing that God really is fair. And yet God doesn't rebuke the psalmist for his lack of faith. That's an important part. God doesn't go around saying, you idiot, what's your problem here? Why is your faith so small? He calls for faith. He asks for faith. He calls us to grow into faith. But he doesn't shame us because of the struggles that we have. Alistair McGrath, who many of you know is a great Christian writer, put it this way. 
He said, and here's the mixture of there's a distinction here. Unbelief <clears throat> is the decision to live your life if there's no, as if there's no God. It's a deliberate decision to reject Jesus Christ and all that he stands for. But doubt is something that's quite different. Doubt arises within the context of faith. That's a very important phrase. Doubt arises within the very context of faith. It's a wistful longing to be sure of the things in which we trust. But it is not, and it need not be a problem. It's a good quote. So for one thing, this passage just reminds us that, you know, doubt does happen. God continues to call us to have faith in him. But the second, second thing it does as well is it reminds us again of this passage where it says, this is um, God speaking, thus far, excuse me, those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy who are un- those who are unfaithful to you. So if one of the themes of that passage is dealing with faith or lack of faith at times, the second part of this passage is dealing with the fact that there is judgment. Judgment is not an issue that most people like to talk about. And in many, many churches across America, you can go a long way and never hear anything about it. It's all about feeding the whales, being kind to one another, one group thing after another. But the reality is, and I've told this you've heard it many, many times, in the New Testament, the person who speaks the most about judgment, his name is Jesus Christ. And that may make us uncomfortable, that may seem weird to us, but particularly in the Olivet Discourse, it's very clear that Jesus talks about the fact that there is a coming judgment and we will all stand before him. As believers, we can stand before him and, and with faith, recognize that we've been saved by him, but there is judgment for those that are opposed. That is not a popular thing in America churches anymore, at least for some of them. But we can't walk away from it because it isn't something we like to talk about. We cannot just go away from it. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 27. He said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Okay, now remember, this is not Peter writing this. Not in Matthew writing this. These are Jesus' words written down by Luke. Who's saying there is a judgment that's coming. And we should not try to shy away from that, but to recognize the reality of it as well. So if people like Susan, they don't say, oh, I'm so glad that I'm going to be good and get be saved, and these people are going to be destroyed. We have no sense of thrill of thinking these people are going to be lost. We want all people to come to know Christ. But the reality is, there are many who will choose against him. And there will be many who will struggle. You know, I don't think that works so well, very well for the picture, but the idea of the last judgment. Famous picture. There is coming a last judgment where Jesus is going to come again in glory. Jeffrey Gore put it this way. If there's no belief in hell, the concept of judgment also becomes meaningless, then all that's left of Christianity is a system of ethics. It's a good quote. And that's exactly what's happened in many churches, many groups today. All it is is ethics. Try to do good, be kind, be nice, that kind of stuff. Which is all good things, but it ain't the gospel. The gospel says there really is a reality 
There are some who will be saved. There are some who will be not. This psalm, this psalm which is so beautiful, Psalm 73, reminds us again, it's all worth it. And if you're here today and you're wondering yourself, is it really worth it to follow the Lord? As a congregation, it ought to be a resounding, you better believe it. It is worth it. God is king. He is Lord. He is upon his throne. And we can trust him fully. <clears throat> Our, Father, <coughs> Our Father, we thank you for your goodness to us today. We thank you for your word. And Father, we thank you for this psalmist. We have no idea what his or her name was, but we thank you that their story, their struggle, can give strength to us to really answer that question, of, is it worth it? And that we can say it's true. It is worth it to follow the Lord. So be with us now. Help us now as we come to the Lord's table where we remember what you have done in us and for us and how you invite us to come to that table. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.